Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brush strokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join Professor Linda Steer and listen in for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. Welcome back. Wow, it's been a while since I've been to an art museum. I guess that's the case for many of us right now. I'm remembering walking through the Louvre, through the long gallery of 18th and 19th century French painting, heels clicking on the parquet floor, the sounds of voices echoing through the space. It's pretty crowded because this gallery also holds the Mona Lisa, in my memory, not in the current moment. I avoid the lineup for the Mona Lisa and instead I'm looking at the huge history paintings all around me. Delacroix's triumphant liberty leading the people, Jericho's terrifying the raft of the Medusa, David's heroic oath of the Horati. What is it about these paintings that is so interesting or appealing? Part of it is the size and the setting, for sure. The raft of the Medusa, for example, is 16 by 23 feet or 4.91 by 7.16 meters. And it is a long rectangular room with many other similar sized French paintings on both walls. But it's also that they are dramatic narratives. They tell stories that focus on pivotal moments. They are what we call history paintings. We see many of these kinds of dramatic scenes in the 19th century in European countries and North America. But the notion of history painting goes back a little further. What exactly are history paintings? And why are they significant in the canon of Western art? In this episode of Unboxing the Canon, we will consider these questions along with some historical examples before we turn to the present moment and consider how artists might use this genre today. The notion of history painting has changed over time, but we can make some generalizations. The term history can be a bit confusing because although many of the paintings deal with historical subjects, a history painting needn't be about history. The term comes from the Latin word historia. Leon Battista Alberti used that word in his treatise On Painting, which he published in 1436. While On Painting is most well known for outlining the rules of perspective, which was a new and highly illusionistic mathematical method for creating three-dimensional images on a two-dimensional plane, Alberti also addressed the subject matter of painting. The subject matter of painting was to be intellectual, significant, not frivolous, but weighty. In other words, great painters should deal with serious and important subject matter. 
This intellectual dimension of painting was important at a time when painters were attempting to have their work recognized as more than craft, but instead as a liberal art. The seven liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, logic, geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music, were the foundation of medieval education. And during Alberti's time, education shifted to include poetry and history as well, kind of what we now think of as the humanities, or some parts of the humanities. While the word historia can be loosely translated as story, there is no modern equivalent for the term, and its meaning had changed by the time we see painters such as Géricault and Delacroix working in France. For Alberti, great painters had to be educated and able to interpret classical and biblical texts and create scenes which, by using composition, gesture, color, and drawing, were able to express emotional complexity. Painting was not to be mere imitation, but, and I'm quoting here, the historia will move the soul of the beholder when each man painted there clearly shows the movement of his own soul. It happens in nature that nothing more than herself is found capable of things like herself. We weep with the weeping, laugh with the laughing, and grieve with the grieving. End quote. By the time Raphael painted his School of Athens almost a century later, in 1509 to 1510, humanism was the prevalent mode of thinking and learning, and philosophy, or human knowledge, the subject of this painting, was on par with theology, the subject of a painting, on an opposite wall. Raphael depicts the classical roots of human knowledge using order, harmony, color, and gesture to express its importance. Plato and Aristotle are located at the center of the fresco in this amazingly illusionistic architectural space of receding barrel vaults, stairs, arches, and a dome. Nearby, also in Vatican City, and painted right at the same time, well, from 1508 to 1512, is Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling, a complex, elegant, monumental, and dramatic fresco cycle that depicts stories from the Old Testament. We are all familiar with that image of God floating in from the heavens to touch Adam's finger and create the first human a story that is told in Genesis. These paintings contribute to the highest form of Western art at that time, the late Renaissance in Italy. Most art historical textbooks will list these two paintings as examples of the pinnacles of Western art, really of all art. They are considered true masterpieces, and I'll put that word in quotation marks, Remember that word from episode one when we thought about Titus Kaffar's remaking of Franz Hall's group portrait? It's a loaded word, masterpiece. If these are the best of the best, what do they show? Michelangelo shows us that the first human is a man, a white man. Raphael shows us that all of Western culture rests on the shoulders of ancient white men. Well, one human woman is pictured and she has been identified as Hypatia, a philosopher and mathematician who lived in Alexandria, Egypt in the 4th and 5th centuries. A pagan, she was, 
quote, torn to pieces by a mob of Christians at the instigation of their bishop Cyril, end quote, according to the Oxford Classical Dictionary. Cyril became a saint. Remember that it is important to make note of who is represented in art and who is left out. Let's jump ahead to the 17th century. There was a distinction between the so-called high arts, history painting, and the minor arts, such as decorative arts and paintings that were not history paintings. This distinction was formalized by André Felibien. Felibien's hierarchy of painting genres from 1667 reflected ideas about the distinction between invention and imitation. The highest level paintings, history paintings, relied on invention and imagination, which were seen as the skills of educated people. While the imaginary scenes of history paintings were based on stories, the artists had to create the scene in their head. This was believed to be much more difficult to do than to copy from nature. This relates to the Baroque notion of the ideal. The ideal cannot be found in nature. Nature is imperfect. Beauty is perfect. In invented scenes, the artist selected what was best and perfect in nature and left out the ugly or the less ideal. The lower forms of art relied on imitation, portraits, landscapes, the very popular flower paintings, still life, etc. were copies of what was visible in nature. No imagination was needed for these paintings. An artist only needed to copy nature. This relates to the Baroque notion of the real. In the real world, there is ugliness, death, and imperfection of all kinds. These ideas about hierarchy prevail even when we see a shift in the subject matter in paintings in the late 18th and early 19th century France, when history painting takes on political overtones. Jacques-Louis David's Oath of the Horatii exhibited in the Salon just before the Revolution in 1786. The painting shows a dramatic and emotional moment in a Roman legend, retold by 16th century French playwright Corneille, while sort of retold by him, the scene is actually missing from the play, where two groups of young men, the Horatii from Rome and the Curatii from Alba, choose to fight one another as representatives of either side, thus sparing the lives of many that would have been lost in a full-out war. The painting shows the Horatii, triplets, taking an oath, swearing allegiance to Rome. This new style of painting, known as neoclassicism, uses clear composition and linear forms. It is economical. Only the elements to tell the story are shown. Huge, the figures are life-sized, and symbolic in its visual elements. David uses thirds to tell the story. There are three men, three swords, three arches, three women off to the side, and the canvas is divided into three areas. The men on the left, the father and the swords in the center, and the women at the right in shadows. The painting's themes are honor, self-sacrifice for the greater good of the Republic, patriotism, and morality. 
It is also a heroic celebration of masculinity. Originally painted for the king, by the 1790s it had become a symbol of the revolution. This is significant, for it shows us that the meaning of a painting can change, despite an artist's or patron's intent. David's painting still refers to the classical past, even though it expresses the politics of the moment. In the 19th century, we see history painting engaging with current stories, some even taken from the headlines, such as in Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, painted in 1819. This painting is based on a real contemporary event that happened in 1816. A French ship called the Medusa, loaded with settlers and soldiers heading for Senegal, was involved in a shipwreck. The captain of the ship was incompetent and poorly trained, but had been given the job because of his class status and wealthy, influential family. In addition, the ship was not adequately outfitted with lifeboats, and the captain and his officers took the only one, leaving 152 people to fend for themselves. These people had to build a raft from the ship's wreckage. 90% of the people abandoned by the captain perished, and only 15 were rescued from the raft two weeks later. Survivors told horrifying tales of what they had endured with no food and hardly any water. You can imagine what happened. This event caused a huge political scandal. Jericho shows us a dramatic tangle of writhing bodies in a dark seascape. There is no order or clarity as in David's painting. There's only chaos which gets to the emotional impact of the event. A tiny ship is visible on the horizon, and the men at the front of the raft stand on one another's shoulders in an attempt to attract its attention. All of the energy in the painting moves towards the pieces of cloth the men at the front wave at that faraway ship, contrasting hope with utter despair. This is a decidedly political painting, as Harris and Zucker claim on Smart History, it is an anti-monarchy painting. Contemporary painters like Kent Monkman have taken up the form of history painting as political and cultural critique. It is an effective method of critique because it is well established in the history of art as the strongest form of art, as art whose purpose is to say something important, whether it be the foundations of Western culture or humanity itself, or heroism, or the tragic loss of life due to inequality in class structures. By employing the genre of history painting, artists can seem to instantly elevate their subject matter. The story becomes important. In The Scream of 2016, Monkman dramatically depicts horror, the horrors of the residential school system a practice whereby, for over a hundred years, Indigenous children in Canada were systematically taken from their parents and put into schools to be assimilated. There was large-scale abuse in these institutions. Like Jericho, Monkman presents us with a chaotic scene in this painting, which heightens the terror, but his composition focuses on one dramatic moment of high tension. In the foreground, 
Two Mounties in red uniforms grab the hair, the dress, and the arm of a young woman who lunges forward, her arms out, her mouth open in a scream, towards her child who is being carried away by a priest. Similar struggles take place behind her and beside her. As in Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, the bodies in this painting are in various states of life and death, and we are viewing trauma. Some critics felt that Jericho's painting went too far, not just in its critique of the recently reinstated monarchy and the king, but also in the way it dramatized a real event and depicted it in all its traumatic detail. I think we need to pause for a moment here and ask, who is this painting for? Who is Monkman's intended audience? The painting seems instructive, made to show and convince a white audience of something that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people know from experience, that residential schools were a form of terror. Writing in C Magazine, David Garneau tells the story of a Cree artist and a Métis curator standing before this painting. The artist asks the curator what he thinks, and the curator says, Kent Monkman is the Norman Rockwell of native trauma. Garneau unpacks that statement through his article. I can't do the article justice here. You really should read it. But I'll read a few sentences. I'm quoting now. The jarring juxtaposition of Rockwell and Monkman offers intuitive shape to what our Métis curator perceives is a shared, indigenous discomfort with some shame and prejudice paintings, the series of which the scream is part. The comparison is initially uneven. Rockwell is criticized for sentimentality, for icing over his turbulent times with utopic confections of small-town life while Rockwell sought refuge in an expurgated America. Monkman hijacks this aesthetic to recover and display some of what that conservative imaginary edited out. The curator's intuition, however, is that the style itself undermines the content, rendering native trauma a spectacle for white consumption. End quote. And later in the article, Garneau states, quote, the scream's wholeness, brightness, and staginess feel awkward, intrusive, and superficial. Our Métis curator wonders who and what the painting is meant to satisfy, end quote. These are certainly provocative statements and well worth considering. One thing I always tell my students is that when we look at images that depict trauma, we have to be aware of the implications of looking of our potential voyeurism. And again, we need to be aware of our subject positions, of who we are, and where we look from. As a white woman, when I look at the scream, I might be detached whether I know it or not, because I don't have the embodied experience of this trauma. Whoever we are, whatever our background, we can think critically about what we see and what we might not fully understand. Garneau suggests that we compare Monkman's The Scream to the work of Robert Houle or Alex Janvier, indigenous artists from a different generation whose work addresses the experience of the residential schools in Canada. 
In his series of drawings, the Sandy Bay Residential School series, completed in 2009, Salto artist Robert Houle shows us what happened to him. But the images are oblique. The small-scale drawings are moving, yet not dramatic. We don't see exactly what happened to him. Events are suggested. The drawings have an unfinished quality. One, entitled Drive-In Predator, is a wash of blue with a white screen in the distance. Night Predator depicts the black outline of a bed in the foreground with a red door in the background. A black circle, a head, peeks up from behind the bed. It is difficult to know whether this is the predator or the child. The language of these paintings is fragmented, cryptic, and unclear. They give us the impression that Houle's experience is not quite representable. In an interview with writer and curator Shirley Medill, Houle stated that my residential school drawings are about what happened to me without the language of judgment and forgiveness. The artist's experience is not fully accessible to us. Unlike the genre of history painting, a narrative genre that tells a clear story, a fully visible dramatic story, Hull creates something that is more personal and less spectacle, something more nuanced and less didactic. His motives aren't overtly political, but instead are more artistic in the sense that art is an expression of an artist's experience. That's it for this episode. I hope I've given you something to think about. Next week is reading week at Brock University, and I will be, well, hopefully reading. There will be no episode on October 14th, but you will hear from me again on the 21st. See you next time. Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Linda Steer for her course, Introduction to the History of Western Art, in the Department of Visual Arts at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. Our sound designer and editor is Devin Dempsey, who is also reading these credits. Our logo was created by Sherry Michaels. The music for this podcast have been adapted from Night in Venice and Inspired by Kevin McLeod. Both are licensed under Creative Commons Attribution International 4.0. We are grateful to Alison Innes from the Faculty of Humanities for sharing her podcast wisdom and offering support. This podcast is funded by the Humanities Research Institute at Brock University.